It's the Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. This is Michael James Lauren, your host. An MIT professor answers questions on God and science. Yes, can a scientist believe in miracles? Dr. Ian Hutchinson is our special guest, and uh, he is a plasma physicist, too smart for me, professor of nuclear science and engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he was born in England, educated in Cambridge University, received his doctorate from Australian National University. And uh, he joins us. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Our sponsors with over 90 years experience in developing audio electronics. Bayer Dynamics stands for innovative audio products with the highest sound quality and pioneering technology. Two business divisions, consumer and installation, provide tailored solutions for professional and private users. All products are developed in Germany and primarily manufactured by hand. From headphones to microphones and conference and interpretation systems. For more information, please visit north-america.bearedynamic.com. And by Vocal Booth to Go carries a complete line of products and accessories specifically designed for voiceover actors, audio professionals, podcasters, producers, and studio owners to help them get professional results for their clients. It's your go-to place for sound treatment, soundproofing, portable, and mobile vocal booths. Visit VocalBoothToGo.com for more information. And by Hamilton Stands, founded in 1883 in Hamilton, Ohio, Hamilton Stands is the oldest music and instrument stand maker in the world. They offer a broad range of sheet music stands, band and orchestra instrument stands, and combo stands, including mic stands, guitar and keyboard stands, and accessories. In fact, the broadcast you're listening to is made using a Hamilton stage rocker mic stand. Visit HamiltonStands.com. And Oralex Acoustics has one mission, to make you sound your best. Thousands of satisfied Oralex customers have experienced improved acoustics, along with free expert advice, total sound control products from Oralex. Enjoy widespread use among prominent artists, producers, engineers, and corporations worldwide. Remember, it's not your gear, it's the room. Visit Oralex.com for more information. And great audio starts with great gear. And Zoom's 30-year reputation promises quality and affordability. Visit zoom-na.com today for recorders, audio interfaces, effects pedals, and more. We're Zoom, and we're for creators. It's a pleasure to be with you. This is one of the rare times that I'm, my IQ, I'm very self-conscious here. (laughs) Uh, You don't need to be self-conscious, nor do your listeners for that matter. Um, I mean... I, I am I am a well qualified scientist, but I certainly my book, which is what we're talking about, is intended to be for people um, uh, who are just interested in the topic. Yes, that's right, and it is a popular topic. You know, I I don't know why when people look at intellectuals and they think, well, can they believe in God? Is are they too prideful? People who are scientists, but uh, I tend to find that a lot of people who are scientists. Um, have reason to believe in God. Is that right? Well, I think we all have reason to believe in God. <clears throat> I think if you, if you look at the statistics, it probably is the case that um, compared with the population as a whole, uh, people in universities, university professors and so forth, tend to be Christian believers in a lower percentage than the population as a whole. But among those uh, academics, in fact, um, scientists are, if anything, the, m- the most likely to believe in God, not the least, uh, which is contrary to what a lot of people think. And what it shows, of course, is that it is, if, if academics don't believe in God, it's not because of science. 
Yeah. And so it doesn't have to be one or the other, but you break it down nicely in chapter five. Does reason support Christian belief? You say arguments, philosophical and logical arguments for God, evidence, public observations that support God's existence, individual, immediate personal religious experience, order, perception that the idea of God makes sense of everything in utility that is useful, beneficial, or prudent to believe in God. Can you make sense of that for us? Yeah, um, that's basically some of the reasons uh, to believe in God. It's often um, suggested by the skeptics and the and the anti-theists that there are no reasons to believe in God, but actually there are lots of reasons. And and what you just read out is my five categories of different types of re- reasons, which include philosophical arguments. They include things like historical evidence, um, you know, evidence for the resurrection and, and for uh, God's action in the world, uh, our own personal experience of God, which I think is uh, for many people, a very important reason why they feel they have good reason to believe in God. And and uh, the, the sense, uh, which is hard to explain, that belief in God somehow makes sense of everything. Um, it, it makes sense of the world. And um, historically, uh, uh, um, it was often the case that people came to belief in God um, for utilitarian reasons, that it somehow seemed beneficial, or, for example, that it, that it um, uh, alleviated them of fear of going to hell. Um, these may seem um, somehow unworthy reasons. To they, call that, uh, they call that fire insurance, Dr. Yeah, Rick. right. Um, th- these may seem unworthy reasons uh, to believe in God, but actually um, they can be perfectly good reasons to believe in God. Um, and in fact, reasons that are utilitarian are what are usually offered by uh, secularists these days as the basis for their own morality. No kidding. You hear that all the time. And uh, who's developing morality, you know, God or us? And uh, it's always a, a struggle, as the Bible says, you know, enmity against God. But, um, you know, scientists like to know everything. I mean, they're smart people, let's be honest. And so, you know, they have theorems and theories and methodologies that everyone wants to know. But when you look at the vastness of the world and the universe and everything, and is that intimidating to someone to say sometimes the camp is, oh, how could anybody really ever know? Uh, and uh, it's just too much information out there. It just seems beyond reach. Do, do scientists get intimidated by that? Well, scientists certainly want to know about the natural world, and that's what drives us. We're, we're fascinated by it, and uh, science has developed extremely powerful ways of understanding the world insofar as it is reproducible and can be described with a kind of unambiguous clarity. And that's really what science is in the business of doing. It's in the business of understanding the reproducible aspects of the world. Um, We also, though, have lots of knowledge in areas which aren't really scientific. And this is one of the points that I try to make in my book and that I've, I've been making it for 25 years or more in the in the various um, talks that I give to university audiences, and that is that science is not all the real knowledge we have, uh, as as many people believe. So I don't subscribe to that belief. That belief is is often referred to as scientism, um, and I think it's a terrible mistake. So there are lots of disciplines in which we have perfectly well-established knowledge. History is a good example. We know lots of things about history and what happened in the past in human lives and, and in societies, but we didn't find that out by science. 
uh, not by natural sciences, using the techniques that folks like me use in our everyday work. So um, I think what, you know, it's certainly, we recognize there are many things that we don't know. Um, the, the scope of our knowledge is very limited, but, e but in a certain sense, scientific knowledge is even more limited than, um, than, uh, than human knowledge as a whole, because scientific knowledge is just one type of knowledge that humans have. Yeah, it's amazing. People seem to, I don't know, they defer to the scientists and say, well, they've got a stronghold on the, the brain or intelligence. Or, and of course they know. I mean, we, we grew up in school that way, that the science says this, science dictates this. And uh, instead of uh, God, who's, you know, not allowed in the schools a lot of times. So we let the scientists uh, a lot of times. But your book, though, says, can a scientist believe in miracles? You, you up the ante. Why miracles? Well, this, this question about miracles, can a scientist, scientist believe in miracles, is actually just one of over 200 questions that I've been asked at, uh, at a whole host of uh, presentations that I've made to mostly university audiences. But it's one of the most pressing questions, I think, for Christians, because the Christian faith is ultimately um, founded on the proclamation of the apostles that Jesus has risen from the dead. And, and so in, at the heart of the Christian faith is a powerful miracle. And so if, if one were not able to believe in a miracle like the resurrection, uh, then one wouldn't be able to be a Christian. And so, so this question, can a scientist believe in miracles, really comes down to can a scientist be a Christian, at least in my, in my estimate. I agree with that. I agree. God, God really does that, doesn't he? In the, in the scriptures, uh, you see all the time that uh, people are confronted with the knowledge that they have, the capacity, and then uh, thinking outside the box. is only, you know, God's way is much higher, and he makes people think past their own comfort zone, if you will. In other words, in order to believe in Jesus, you do have to believe in miracles. I agree with that. I think you do. And, uh, and certainly historically, um, people have, in, the, in the 18th century particularly and into the 19th uh, began to develop the view that somehow, well, perhaps miracles are impossible because, you know, science is finding out that the world, you know, obeys these natural laws. And um, as far as we can tell from science, these laws are universal. And so how could God be active in, an, in a world in which we have these universal scientific laws and people worry about that. And some people conclude that God can't work in, in that uh, kind of environment. And in, in the 19th century, particularly um, many of the people who abandoned their Christian faith um, pointed to uh, problems associated with how could God in fact be active in the world. It's worth remarking, though, that actually science has moved on from where it was in the 18th and 19th centuries. And so in the 20th century, you know, we've, we've come to realize that the world isn't quite as deterministic as many people used to think. In other words, it isn't a situation that the world is governed by these completely deterministic laws um, that if you knew the initial conditions and you, you could solve the differential equations, you could predict the future perfectly. In fact, quantum mechanics shows that the universe isn't actually quite like that. We've tried very hard to make um, natural laws like that, that, that are deterministic, but the, but the world doesn't quite, quite obey them, and that's what quantum mechanics tells us. So actually, in the 20th and 21st centuries, it seemed 
uh, a little easier in a certain sense uh, to take the view that um, there is a freedom about the universe that allows for the actions of God. Ladies and gentlemen, you're getting like a free MIT class or <laughs> right now. I mean, you're getting a free class right now, period, from Dr. Ian Hutchinson uh, and his book, uh, Can a Scientist Believe in Miracles? Uh, it says an MIT professor answers questions on God and science. So I have to ask you a question, though. When you talk to some of the MIT professors, just anyone, do they ever think that it's a weakness for scientists to believe in God or do they think that, you know, uh, a screw loose or I, I mean do they do they kid around about it I mean uh, are they skeptical about it well there are many there are many people on for example on the faculty at MIT and other universities for that matter who are skeptical about Christianity who don't believe in Christianity or or who you know take a totally secularist or materialist view and and don't believe there's a God or or, or that um, and don't believe that miracles happen I've never um, uh, experienced a, a situation in which um, fellow faculty members have been purely dismissive of my religious viewpoints. But I have, um, I, I am aware of a, a number of situations in which sort of kind of behind my back people have kind of uh, criticized me for my Christian faith. I, I don't find that particularly surprising. I think people criticize people behind their backs all the time. Yeah, true. <laughs> but, but so I don't consider myself to have been persecuted or or in any sense, although I I have and people sometimes ask me this, you know, have I have I been the subject of any discrimination for my openness about my Christian faith? Fair question. Um, you know, as far as the administration is concerned, I'm not aware of any. You never know um, how people are influenced by what they perceive as people's commitments. But I will say that there are plenty of Christians on the faculty. I'm a long way from being the only one. And, uh, you know, th they are people who are very active both within the administration and in leadership roles in science and in the institution as a whole. And so I don't feel particularly strange at, as an individual uh, within the MIT environment, although I must admit that... Um, the priorities of uh, morals and ethics today are, are very different from and, and, and ill-aligned with what I take to be Christian teaching. Um, but, you know, that's true of the society as whole. And, um, you, talk about, you talk about strange. I, I think that <laughs> I'm looking at your book here, and uh, I, I don't think much, uh, many of us know what a plasma physicist is. And a professor of nuclear science and engineering, can you can you explain your pedigree? I mean, because you're quite accomplished, but uh, tell tell us a little bit about being a plasma physicist. Yeah. Okay. Well, what's a plasma? Plasma is the fourth state of matter. If you heat matter up, it starts solid, then it becomes liquid, then it becomes gas, and then it, if you keep heating it, it becomes plasma. And plasma is a state, a gaseous state, in which the atoms are ionized, the electrons are stripped off the nuclei, and so as a result, it can carry current and it has very important um, uh, collective properties that are different from gases. The reason why I study, I have studied plasma physics for most of my career has, is associated with the desire to bring f uh, uh, fusion energy, the energy source of the sun and stars, down to the Earth scale and implement it on Earth and it, so as to be able to do things like generate electricity and so forth. Fusion is, is a new type of nuclear reaction that takes place between light 
nuclei like hydrogen and helium and related species. Which, and it turns out that when uh, those uh, um, nuclei brought together and, and fuse together and form heavier elements, that releases energy. And that is the energy that keeps the, st- the sun and stars burning. Um, it's a different type of nuclear energy from the nuclear energy that we know of on Earth. When we talk about nuclear reactors, they are based on taking heavy elements like uranium and breaking them up. That's called fission. Um, and that also, it turns out, releases energy. Fusion has my, certain... My brain, my brain does not work like that. In a <laughs> I'm thinking, honey, what's on TV? I mean, you know, I mean, you're, <laughs> you're, it's remarkable to talk to someone like yourself because, uh, I mean, what, how often do you talk to a plasma physicist? I mean, every day. I do it all the time. Yeah. Yeah, you do. Right. I mean, people, t- <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty remarkable. I want to ask you though, when it comes to different religions, do you find that the Bible does a great job? I'm sure it does, but of, of really talking about science. Uh, you say in your book, when, when religion tries to describe scientific phenomena, should we not use a scientific lens over religious claims? As science continues to expand, as religious truth become less and less relevant? Not sure if it's part of this question or not, but do other religions cover science like the Bible and do a good job at it? Um, I, you know, I let's talk about the Bible. The, the Bible is a, a, a vital book for Christians. It's full of different types of literature. It has prophecy, it has history, it has biography, it has religious instruction, theology, letters, songs, hymns, poems, etc., etc. The one thing that the Bible doesn't contain is scientific literature. Hmm. Uh, The Bible was not written um, to explain things scientifically in the sense that we mean it today. Um, and so I, th- I consider it's a great mistake to go to the Bible and think and ho- or hope that the Bible is going to teach you science. So that's the first thing. We shouldn't look for science in the Bible. Um, of course, for many people, um, the questions arise about how, for example, the first few chapters of Genesis could be consistent with our modern scientific understanding of the world. And my book goes into this in great depth. Um, but, but generally speaking, I think the answer is that if you come to the scriptures, to Genesis, for example, the first few chapters of Genesis, and read Genesis as it was read by the people to whom it was originally written, and, and they didn't read it as science, they read it as a uh, creative and worshipful description that emphasizes that God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is not just a tribal deity like the deities around about uh, the people of Israel, but is in fact the creator of the whole thing, then that is the message, the primary message of Genesis. Not how did God create the world, but that he created it. And I think that that kind of attitude towards the scriptures, trying to read it intelligently, um, as it were, in, in a form in which it was originally written, is the right way to go about uh, understanding the Bible properly. That's a very good point, because I was going to ask, uh, in you know, being a, a plasma physicist as I am, um, I'm just kidding, but yeah. <laughs> as you are. So, um, I mean, are you able to kind of 
as God speaks to us uh, plainly, if you will, you know, in, in somewhat simple terms, I suppose, are you able to kind of put on your uh, plasma physicist goggles and say, wait a minute, he's talking about something related to science that uh, I can really understand? I don't think that my science helps me very much to understand the Bible. I think the Bible is written for people who are as much a regular Joe as the plasma physicist. In fact, why would God put anything about plasma physics into the Bible? Because that would be significant only to, as you pointed out, a handful of scientists who know something about plasma physics. That isn't the way the scriptures are, were intended, and I don't think it's the way that they are currently intended. They're in, intended, as sometimes said in respect to the Galileo controversy, they're, in, they're intended to tell us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. So I think that it, it has been a mistake that has been made by Christians and by atheists um, over uh, over many centuries to go to the Bible and and expect it to give um, you know some kind of science um, scientific description in accordance with the latest science uh, and it doesn't and frankly it doesn't surprise me that it doesn't and I don't expect it to do what what enables me to understand the Bible um, better is to read it um, seriously, take it seriously, take it for what uh, um, it is, which is inspired by God and, um, you know, fruitful for instruction um, and all of the things that, you know, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, um, and it's to be the heart of the guidance and uh, authority for our life and faith. Well, that is for sure. And what do you think, though? I mean, the capacity of the brain and for intelligence, and let's just throw a scientist in there. Uh, do you feel that sometimes they try to play God? I mean, when you talk about cloning and other kind of things like that, is, uh, is it easy to, to be prideful and uh, as intelligent uh, people may be and to think that uh, they could actually be God? I mean, you think you go into, uh, we talk about plasma, uh, physicist or things like that, that uh, can you take things upon yourself and uh, do, do they have a God complex? Well, I think scientists are quite often arrogant, but only some of them, not all of them. Um, I hope some of them are, have, have appropriate humility. And if we, if we were to think in scriptural terms, um, what, the, what the Bible says is, is you should have a sober assessment of your gifts and callings. Um, so you shouldn't run yourself down, but you shouldn't puff yourself up. And most importantly, the Bible says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So quick answer, yes, there are plenty of arrogant scientists, and I've met quite a few of them, um, but, but they're not all arrogant. The, but perhaps behind your question is um, something more, which is very often scientists portray themselves as unlocking the secrets yes. of existence. And I think that that's oversell on their part. I think science does discover some extremely important things about the natural world. And the knowledge that science develops is real knowledge. And uh, it's brought to, uh, to humankind many great benefits in technology and related things. But it is not unlo- unlocking all the secrets uh, that there are uh, in the world by a long shot. That's that National Geographic channel, isn't it? 
<laughs> yeah, quite so. Unlocking the secrets. You know, they've got that announcement. <laughs> exactly. An addictive ch- a channel. But I want to, in part of what you're saying, though, okay, so let's, let's take science now and let's go to chapter seven of your book, okay? And so now let's bring it into a spiritual knowledge, a spiritual concept. So how do we go from intellectual knowledge to a spiritual knowledge? Well, I, I think that there are um, principles by which we, we humans uh, think clearly. Sometimes these are referred to as critical thinking. And, and what critical thinking is really about is, um, is trying to work out the best explanation of some sequence of phenomena or some phenomenon, um, setting aside the, the various interests and biases that we all as people uh, who live in this world with various interests might have. And so critical thinking is the attempt to say, all right, well, yeah, I would like it to be this, but actually let's think hard and and try to understand what the best answer is. Now that kind of thinking is often uh, Christians and and religious believers are often accused of not exercising. Um, that, That instead they have a kind of believism where they want to, they want to believe something, so they just say, "All right, I believe it." Okay. Well, now maybe there are some people in in uh, the Christian Church who are like that. Uh, there are also some people who aren't in the Christian Church who are like that. So there is such a thing yeah, as sure, I believe it. You know, <laughs> but I don't think that that is a, a a fair description of what Christians mean by faith, um, and therefore, uh, bottom line is there are ways of finding out knowledge. And spiritual knowledge has uh, a reality about it. And spiritual knowledge comes about by some of the same sorts of thinking, critical thinking, if you like, um, that by which we discover all kinds of other knowledge. But it doesn't, spiritual knowledge usually doesn't come about by using the techniques of science. But because science isn't all the real knowledge, the fact that religion or Christianity it does not use science to discover its knowledge, doesn't rule out um, uh, uh, the Christian faith from having any true knowledge. It doesn't rule, rule out theology from, ha- from being true knowledge. And we're talking right now with Dr. Ian Hutchinson, who is a plasma physicist and professor of nuclear science and engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, known as MIT. His book, An MIT Professor Answers Questions on God and Science, the book, Can a Scientist Believe in Miracles? And so has this book been used at all? I mean, people come to Christ in in reading it and say, well, you know, uh, I believe, you know, I'm converted. I I don't know, because it's only just come out. It's only been out for a week. So I, I, I haven't heard anything about, um, about that. It's certainly the case that, um, you know, in the, in the many talks that I've given on the subject of science and the Christian faith, um, many people have come up to me afterwards and uh, remarked how the helpful um, some of the things that I've said have been. And on occasions I've heard about people who've uh, become Christian believers in part by the influence of uh, um, um, the Veritas forums, for example, that, at which I've spoken. But actually, and I think in the end, um, people come to Christ for lots of different reasons, and many of those reasons aren't purely intellectual. I don't think they're necessarily anti-intellectual in the way that the skeptics often imagine, but I wouldn't for a moment 
pretend that you have to, you know, basically uh, have some kind of intellectual argument that ultimately brings you to Christ. Some people come to Christ because of a remarkable religious experience. Some people come to Christ because of great felt need or um, a feeling of inadequacy. Some people come to Christ because they have friends who are Christians and so on and so forth. So I think there's a whole spectrum of ways in which um, people become Christians. Dr. Um, Hutchinson, uh, speaking of which, would you mind briefly, would you mind sharing your testimony, how you came to the Lord? Sure. Um, I did not grow up in a Christian home. My parents uh, and my family did not go to church, but um, I went to a school uh, at which, um, you know, the Christian faith was peripherally involved in, in the, ch- in the uh, school for, uh, at the daily um, uh, assembly, a, a hymn would be sung and so forth. So I wasn't ignorant of Christianity, but I just didn't believe in it. Um, and, you know, it wasn't a big deal, but I, I just didn't believe in it. And uh, it wasn't until I went to Cambridge University that I began to take Christianity really seriously. Uh, this was in part because I had uh, I, I had two good uh, student friends at college um, who uh, were both Christians and whose lives were attractive to me and who obviously were highly intelligent people and um, and had a um, a way of explaining their faith and and uh, talking about it which um, made sense to me and. Um, in the end, they um, in my second year, they invited um, me to go to a series of lectures given by a man called Michael Green, who was a well-known Christian speaker in, in those days in England. And he was talking about uh, the Christian faith. And I think the, the two things that really struck me um, as new ideas that I hadn't thought about before or I, I felt I'd never heard of before was in the first place that there was good reason to believe that the resurrection had actually taken place. There were good historical reasons to believe it. And secondly, that Christianity wasn't simply a matter of intellectual belief, but that God called us uh, through Jesus Christ to a relationship with him. And those yes. things struck me deeply. And um, I began to realize that I kind of did believe um, in, the re- in the resurrection and in, in, and in the call of the Christian faith. But I knew that um, if I were going to go further, I would have to take seriously a step of faith and commitment. Um, and that's what I did. One evening in my um, student rooms, I knelt and prayed to to God, um, asking him to forgive my sins and to, and committing myself to Christ. And, and that's how I became a Christian. Amen. That's beautiful. I, I, you know, it's such powerful messages, uh, how God works, you know, and a testimony. So I'm so glad uh, that you share that. And uh, just to let you know, Dr. Hutchinson, in, in talking to you, I think my IQ has gone up maybe two points. Okay, well, I'm glad to hear it. Well, that's a miracle right there. (laughs) (laughs) Can a scientist believe in miracles? Dr. Ian Hutchinson, he's been a special guest and MIT professor, answers questions of God and science. And uh, we enjoyed you very much. Anything else you want to cover or just want to say to our audience? Uh, No, I just think that um, the big questions of life are the important questions of life. And science can't answer those. But they, those questions, we Christians uh, would say, have answers. They may not be pat answers. They may not be answers supported by science, but they are true answers. Uh, and I encourage all of my audiences to take seriously the questions 
the big questions that surround this kind of topic. I agree with that. I have to say in adding that not all the answers are in this world. You know, we have so many questions and and we need that uh, coming from heaven, God's holy book to uh, open up our minds and showing us the way of of miracles and to believe in faith in Christ. Uh, Thank you so much for being our guest. We enjoyed having you. It's been my pleasure. Our sponsors with over 90 years experience in developing audio electronics, Bayer Dynamics stands for innovative audio products with the highest sound quality and pioneering technology. Two business divisions, consumer and installation, provide tailor solutions for professional and private users. All products are developed in Germany and primarily manufactured by hand, from headphones to microphones and conference and interpretation systems. For more information, please visit north-america.bearedynamic.com. And by Vocal Booth To Go carries a complete line of products and accessories specifically designed for voiceover actors, audio professionals, podcasters, producers, and studio owners to help them get professional results for their clients. It's your go-to place for sound treatment, soundproofing, portable, and mobile vocal booths. Visit VocalBoothToGo.com for more information. And by Hamilton Stands, founded in 1883 in Hamilton, Ohio, Hamilton Stands is the oldest music and instrument stand maker in the world. They offer a broad range of sheet music stands, band and orchestra instrument stands, and combo stands, including mic stands, guitar and keyboard stands, and accessories. In fact, the broadcast you're listening to is made using a Hamilton stage rocker mic stand. Visit HamiltonStands.com. And Oralex Acoustics has one mission. To make you sound your best, thousands of satisfied Oralex customers have experienced improved acoustics along with free expert advice, total sound control products from Oralex. Enjoy widespread use among prominent artists, producers, engineers, and corporations worldwide. Remember, it's not your gear, it's the room. Visit Oralex.com for more information. And great audio starts with great gear. And Zoom's 30-year reputation promises quality and affordability. Visit zoom-na.com today for recorders, audio interfaces, effects pedals, and more. We're Zoom, and we're for creators.